Happy Easter, St. Paul's. It is a joy, a joy, joy, joy in my heart to be here. I'm not sure it's always the best news to have confirmation on Easter Sunday. I think it's great news because it's all here. That the sacraments are here, the joy of new life and reaffirming life is all here. But how especially wonderful it is to be here with a community that knows so much about the joy and the love and the work of reconciliation in serving our Lord. And especially, okay, you all know this, right? You have the all-star clergy of the diocese. I, I, I have to accuse you perhaps of hoarding. I don't know, because it's, it's just a lot of treasure in one place. But it is good to be with you all this morning, especially on such a happy day. But I sort of like to mess with you a little bit on a happy day. That's the kind of personality I have. Like, oh, it's just everyone looks beautiful and you've cleaned up so well from working in the garden yesterday. And it's Easter Sunday. You have on your best. But I'm going to mess with you a little bit. I'm going to talk about this being a really scandalous day. And, you know, really, society loves a good scandal. That's what makes the headlines, right? If it bleeds, it leads, they say in the newspaper business. But it's also true that the more things change, the more things stay the same. So we're going to start off with a little quiz this Easter morning. So I ask you, is this a first century A.D. headline or a 21st century headline? Middle Eastern despot uses violence, terror, gruesome weapons to subdue a revolt, inflicting mass casualty upon innocent victims, including large numbers of children. On one hand, King Herod, right? On the other hand, some current examples, right? Okay, breaking news yesterday or two millennia ago. Inside sources give accounts of palace intrigue and uncover surveillance, secret surveillance, as officials argue over policies for restoring law and order among the protesters. Hmm. Pilate and the Sanhedrin? Or pick any administration in Washington since the beginning of time. Sadly, scandal catches the headlines. Sadly, one scandal we just can't put an end to. The scandal of public executions, state-sponsored murder to mollify the masses is still making the news. Oddly, we've just finished a week of walking through the highs and the lows of events that turned the world upside down, that began on Palm Sunday, moved through Monday, Thursday, came to a dead halt on Good Friday. In our liturgical dramas, we've tasted that sweet communion. We've been touched by acts of gentle, intimate kindness. And we probed the depths of human depravity. And scandal of scandal... Human sin collectively conspired to put God on trial, to issue the death penalty, and then watched as Jesus Christ gave up his life for the sake of the very ones who had deserted, betrayed, 
denied, exoriated, and executed him. But then the scandal plunges into a deeper mystery, the mystery of the empty tomb. The scandal deepens with reports from very unreliable sources. Women. Oh, and those fishermen. Reports that God had transformed death. That God had made the grave a gateway to eternal life. That that the guilty, that the guilty verdict on sinners has been vacated and that grace has been granted to those same sinners who we now call the saints. Scandalous. I wonder if we're not facing a different scandal now. I wonder if the shock and the awe of this revolutionary recapitulation of all of salvation has turned into opportunities for basically festivals of fertility rites. Now, I love some eggs and bunnies, especially the chocolate ones. I love the flowers of spring, and I love the lilies of Easter. And I am, like you, thinking about getting that Easter dinner all organized. Whip it up, preacher. So the challenge is for us to see if these old and familiar accounts and this familiar liturgy can still scandalize us and change us and remake us at some level. And that's why I'm so glad that we go before the dawn, before the dawn, with Mary Magdalene, with Peter, and with the beloved disciple. When Mary Magdalene gets to the grave, it is still dark. It may be Easter, but for her, it is still Good Friday. She is the first to see the empty tomb, but she doesn't know what she's doing. She's terrified. She does what any normal human being would do. She runs away to get help. She summons her friends, Peter and the beloved disciple. We don't know his name, but we know he bore a particularly important part in following Jesus and being close to his heart. And so those two disciples run back. They have a foot race. And it's the beloved disciple who gets to the tomb first. Maybe he's younger than Peter. And he reaches there, and without just looking, without going in, just looking, I find this so telling, he believes, oh, that if I were such a disciple. It is just in the looking that he believes, and it all begins to make sense. All those crazy things that Jesus talked about about dying and rising. But then there's Peter. Oh, sweet Peter, thank God for Peter. Peter who I can relate to. Peter who not just stops at the entrance to the empty tomb where Mary and the beloved disciple have stopped, but charges right in like a a CIS investigator at the crime scene. He's going to get in there. He's going to look at the folded cloths. He's going to try to make sense of it all. And he's going to say, it doesn't make sense. And so those two disciples go back home. I sort of feel this imaginary conversation. All right, then, carry on. We'll wait and see. You know where to find me, locked in a room with the other guys. Let me know if you hear anything. And then it's Mary Magdalene alone again. She remains. She weeps. 
And she looks again. She looks more closely at that empty tomb. I love that Mary Magdalene is unafraid to linger with her sorrow. She's brave enough to face into the emptiness that she's feeling. Her grief will not be rushed or hushed. Because, see, she's lost everything. Jesus had filled her life with new purpose. Following Jesus, she had been made part of the inner circle. She'd been given a voice and a place. She had watched Jesus go to the margins of society where he had found her and completely revolutionized the love of neighbor to include the love of lepers, the love of the outcast, the love of breaking bread with those who are considered unpure by polite society. Jesus, who crossed over boundaries, reaching out to people the rest of us were taught to think of as our enemies. The presence of Jesus had given Mary Magdalene a sense of a belonging to a community that cared more about healing and love and celebration than judging and fear and despair. She looks again, and she notices something. There's a stirring, and there's voices. Could it be that this chamber is actually a vessel of hope? Woman, why are you weeping, she's asked the first time. Those messengers, very gently bringing her up short, catching her attention. She weeps because she doesn't yet understand what has happened. You could say she's so focused at looking at what is lacking. Do you know anything about this? So focused on the scarcity and what's lacking that she can't fully comprehend what God is making available. And here's maybe where the first hints of morning light of the dawn appear in the east. There's another presence, and she turns. Who's there? She's not alone after all. There's somebody there also who's not afraid of the dark, of the unknown, of the grief and the sorrow. Someone who can help her find the one she is seeking. Why are you weeping, she's asked a second time by the gardener. Who do you seek? Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? Not what do you seek. Dead bodies are a what. Whom is the one who is with us? It was not his face. It was not his shape or his posture or the gait or all the things that we usually recognize about someone we love most in the world. It was his voice. It was his voice calling her name, Mary. And there it is. She's still enough in her realest place of pain to hear God call her name. And it's resurrection. God is there. God is alive and calling her to new life, turning her life around. And you see, that is the story of resurrection and Easter. Jesus will meet us where we are, whatever the authentic place of joy or sorrow or numbness 
or anticipation, the Lord will meet his disciples locked up in that upper room, locked down in fear. The Lord will meet the women running away in terror. The Lord will meet those two disciples walking slowly away in such profound discouragement off to Emmaus, so discouraged they cannot even see the Jesus that walks with them. Cannot greet the good news that we need to redirect our gaze and see that hope is stronger than despair, that love casts out hate, reconciliation heals what vengeance will only perpetuate and destroy. And when we see that truth, that recreation, that new creation in our own lives, then we see that we are one in the Lord. Did you hear that first part of the service? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one in very many. That sinners and saints are the same people liberated by the love of God. So the question, the gardener, Jesus, in the new garden, perhaps, of Eden, in a new creation. The question Jesus asked the weeping Mary, whom are you looking for? That is the question for us today. And such an important question to me because I forget the who and get all involved in the what. I want answers. I want to know what we're going to do to bring justice for all people. I want to know what we're going to do about climate change. I know what we're going to do. I want to know what we're going to do to find more resources for new missions and ministries. I want to know what we're going to do to find health care for the people who need it and jobs and better jobs for the people who deserve it. I get so caught up in what shall we do that I forget that it all begins with whom do we seek to serve and follow. The scandal is that as much as we human beings make a mess of things, the invitation to be made new is issued anew today in this day of resurrection. The tomb, the emptiness, is actually God's womb that will miraculously bring forth new life. We just are invited to carry it and bear it and to love it and to serve it. Sacrificial love, thanksgiving love, transformative love. What if, in fact, the Episcopal Church, the Church of the Establishment, we know that, right? The Church of the, what if the Church, the Episcopal Church, became its own school of scandal? Look at those crazy Christians where sins are forgiven, where shame and guilt are banished, and new invitations to new life are always offered. Maybe I dismissed Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved too quickly when they went home. Maybe that's the most radical thing we could do today, is to realize when we leave here, we go with the risen Lord. And we go to listen, to learn, to follow. That Jesus is not just in the beautiful liturgical settings as much as I love them, but in all of God's settings. 
prisons, schools, shelters, community gardens, hospice rooms, courtrooms, lovely rooms, lonely rooms. How about this scandalous Episcopalians? What if we become part of a nonviolent, hope-filled, crazy-loving insurrection against the powers of this age? Not because we know all the answers, but because we know all we need to know. God loves us. God has freed us. And now we are free to no longer live unto ourselves, but to the glory of the one who has called us each by name. Life is not ended. It is changed. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia.